you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me uh, to two texts. First to Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. Um, I want to look at two texts this morning, one from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, and another from the epistles, from 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 3. This is Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, the Lord God proclaims, House of Israel, I'm not acting for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name, which you degraded among the nations where you have gone. I will make my great name holy, which was degraded among the nations when you dishonored it among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. When I make myself holy among you in their sight, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you to your own fertile land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and will be cleansed of all your pollution. I will cleanse you of all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your stony heart from your body and replace it with a living one. And I will give you my spirit so that you may walk according to my regulations and carefully observe my case laws. And you will live in the land that I gave to your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, and if you're present with us today, if you would stand with me in honor of the Lord's word, as we look at 2 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 7. The ministry that brought death was carved in letters on stone tablets. It came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't lo look for long at Moses' face because his face was shining with glory, even though it was a fading glory. Won't the ministry of the Spirit be much more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation has glory, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? In fact, what was glorious isn't glorious now because of the glory that is brighter. If the glory that fades away was glorious, how much more glorious is the one that lasts? So since we have such a hope, we act with great confidence. We aren't like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites couldn't watch the end of what was fading away. But their minds were closed. Right up to the present day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. The veil is not removed because it is taken away by Christ. Even today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns back to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Lord's Spirit is, there is freedom. And all of us are looking with unveiled faces at the glory of the Lord as if we were looking in a mirror. And we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's kind of terrible to confess, but I don't remember a lot of Sunday school classes that I was in growing up. Um, but I very vividly remember a Sunday school class from a time when I was in elementary school. 
And I can't remember the lesson, but I remember we had to do an activity that day in which we were given a sheet of paper and the teacher asked us to list if our house was on fire, what were the five things that we would run in our bedroom and grab and flee the house with? And the reason I remember it was because the teacher was very disappointed with us as a class. And I remember him looking at us and saying to us, I can't believe that not a single one of you put the Bible on the list of five things that you would take from your house. And then he looked at me and he said, especially you, Scott. I can't believe. I can't believe that you would leave your Bible and take your baseball card collection. <laughs> I remember saying to him, well, okay, but my dad has a bunch of extra Bibles in his office that you replace them with. I don't know how to replace my 1962 Mickey Mantle card. Um, one of the gifts that comes to us, I think, in times of challenge and difficulty and turmoil is that we we get the opportunity to decide and to see and to discern what is most important to us. What are the things that don't matter very much, but what are the things that are really essential for us? And so over, the, over seven of the next eight weeks, um, hopefully as you came in today, you were given um, this folder um, that says vision for new creation on the front. Um, if not, uh, please grab on, on your way out today. And for those of you online, if you would like to receive one, we would love to send one to you. Um, but over the seven of the next eight weeks, I want to talk about seven core values, seven key principles, seven key ideas that, that I think it, it means for us to think of ourselves as a new creation people. And there are probably a lot of reasons for wanting and sensing the need to do this at this time. Some of it, I think, comes in my heart because during the last couple of years in particular, a lot of you are new to the congregation. And so I would love to take a few weeks and let you know what you're getting yourself into as you begin to participate and find family and connection here at College Church. Um, part of it, I think, is not only that, but I think part of it comes from this unique cultural moment and opportunities that I feel like God is giving to us as a church. And I, I want to think with you and pray with you about that and articulate clearly what I think God is drawing and calling us into at this time. Some of this is frankly deeply personal. Um, I tend to over-reflect probably anyway, but I've been thinking a lot about, it's, it's crazy to me to think that this coming September, um, I'll celebrate my, my 20th anniversary or my 20th year of being a lead pastor. Uh, I've been in ministry in other roles longer than that, but I'll, I've been a lead pastor for 20 years this year, which just seems crazy. And I think I have probably about 10 left, hopefully. And so part of this is thinking about of 20 years of ministry, what have become the most important things to me in leading a congregation? And, and what do I want to spend the next 10 years doing and, and uh, praying about and, and focusing on as a people? But also, I do think in this time of disruption, in this time of real challenge, and a time that's been divisive in a lot of ways, it's also been really clarifying. And I have sensed emerging out of this time period 
some core values and some key ideas. And so I want to reflect on those with you. And as we walk through them and walk through these several values, I, I want to say up front that there's really no priority to them. They don't, they're not in order of importance with one exception, what we're doing today. And so as I thought about the seven and thought about how should we order them, it wasn't, it was clear to me, this one had to come first. Because what I want to reflect on with you today, if we don't get this part right, it's connected to all the others. And if we don't get this part right, then the other six won't really matter. Um, because this is really the linchpin around which so many of the other six are built. And so today I want to reflect with you about what it means for a new creation people to be a holy people. To be a people called to holiness. And I want to reflect out of Ezekiel, and I'm going to get to 2 Corinthians, I promise, but I want to do what I tend to do every once in a while. I want to go through the whole Bible in about eight minutes, I hope. But if we think back to the very first chapter of the scripture, one of the ways I think it's important to reflect on the creation story that we get in the scripture is not just to reflect on that creation story, but to also reflect a little bit on the creation stories that surrounded Israel when Israel told this creation story. Now, I don't have a, a lot of time to get into Assyrian and Babylonian and Persian cultures today. Um, we can do that some semester. Um, but I think that I can take the ancient cultures and how they understood creation, and I think I can put them broadly into two categories. That the first category of creation stories outside of Israel, I would lump in what I would call war narratives. Stories of violence. Stories that argue basically this, do you wanna know why everything's here? It's here because there was a massive cosmic battle and this is what ended up. Just a quick example, the Babylonians would tell a story called the Enuma Elish narratives that largely had to do with battles going on. And finally, one God shoots an arrow through this God, Tiamat, goes, this crocodile God goes through his mouth, hits his heart, and boom, the whole world ends up existing, right? And it's kind of a war narrative. It's a narrative that says the world's here because of conflict. The second broad category is cultures told creation stories based on what I, I would call kind of slave narratives or work narratives. That the reason things exist is because the gods don't want to do everything and therefore they needed to create people who would be the workers, who would be the slaves of the divine, who would be the slaves of the gods. Now, the reason why that's important is because how you think of the creation story, how you think the world got here will largely shape how you think we ought to live while we're here. And so if your creation story comes out of conflict, then here's what you probably believed about the world, these cultures. That, hey, guess what? We're always gonna be at war. The world will always be a place of conflict and it will always be us, the good people, and them, the bad people. And we will always be in battle and conflict over creating our space. And we will know who the sides the gods are on because we'll go to war. And if we win, clearly we were on the God's sides. And that's how we will kind of live and exist and think about humankind. And if we have a kind of slave creation narrative, then 
most of the time, those cultures then began to believe this. Then there are some people in the world who, like the gods, were created to be over most of the other people and maybe a second layer of divine entities who get a little bit of power, but not as much as the upper power. But then the vast majority of people belong to the lower servant slave class. And largely then that justifies the way that we can treat those people because we were created to be in this category and they were unfortunately created to be in that category. But that's the way the world works. Are you with me? So the Israelite people, the people of God tell this creation story. In the beginning, everything was tohu and bohu, but God brought order out of this chaos, but the creation is not an act of battle nor is the creation an act of God needing some labor, but the creation is purely an act of divine love that God creates out of love. And then so importantly in that first chapter, the text is this, and so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so we weren't created to be God's warriors, nor were we created to be God's slaves. We were created to be God's reflections, God's images, God's mirrors. We were created with every quality necessary to be a reflection of God, and this is so important, back to God in love. So God extends his love to humankind. We reflect our love back. But as we do that, we were also created male and female. We were created in a social community so that we reflect that love to each other. And then we were given responsibility not to dominate, but to have dominion or be a caretaker of creation to reflect that love back to the created order and even to reflect that love back to self. So in the story, the strange part is Adam and Eve are naked and that doesn't bother them as they walk with God because there's nothing between them and God. And they walk in mutuality with each other. They walk in care of the garden, but they also are naked and unashamed. They seem to get what we struggle with so much, and that is a proper sense of self-valuing, understanding of themselves as unique, created, loved being by God. You with me? In so many ways, the scripture understands that not just as a picture of holiness, but as a picture of wholeness. It is the way things are supposed to be. But of course, in the story, we recognize that's not the way things have ended up. That people have turned from those purposes, turned to idolatry, turned, turned to self as God. And once that relationship with God is broken, then everything seems to be broken with each other, broken with the creation, broken with self. And so moving forward in the story, God redeems a people out of this bondage because This brokenness is not just individuals, but this brokenness pervades the whole system. And so again, we have a culture thinking they need cheap labor and enslaving another. And so God redeems this people out of that kind of brokenness and out of that kind of bondage. But now he takes them to the wilderness and he's going to teach them how to do this whole thing. And so over and over in what we call the Torah or the law, we get this phrase, in particular in the book of Leviticus, God says, hey, hey, hey. Yo, Israel, I am Yahweh. I brought you out of that mess. You'll have no other gods before me, but here's the deal. Be holy as I am holy. And so the law then begins in the Decalogue or what we call the Ten Commandments. 
You can see this in this. The first three and a half, maybe four commands are about our relationship with God, getting this right. But then all the rest of the commands are about if this is set right, then this is set right in the world. And we're going to be formed then as this people who understand the unique way of God, the unique way of divine love, the unique way of transformation and goodness and holiness in the world. And as we learn that, then the imagination is not just that individuals will be redeemed, but this whole people will be redeemed and they will become a reflection again, an image of this God who has redeemed them. And this reflection will become attractive. It will become a light to the world and the nations will go, yes, that's so good. That's such a better way of understanding the truthfulness of our existence. We want what Israel has, and we will be drawn to that light. Are you with me? Well, it doesn't go that well. But there's a couple of problems. One is us. We're not all that good at faithfulness and obedience. We keep being drawn to these other ways of understanding and living, valuing. But part of the problem, frankly, was the law also. For the law, it was written on stone tablets. Very hard to put in your back pocket. But more than just hard to kind of carry around with you. The law, once a rule is written down, it sort of gets put in a time and place and setting And sometimes it's really difficult then to take that law and move it into other kinds of places. And so I I don't know if you'll notice this, but at times things that we do here as a culture that seem perfectly normal to us, we go to another culture and they seem weird and we seem weirder. Why? Because sometimes those rules written on tablets don't move well from place to place and time to time and setting to setting. And so instead of bringing the life and the holiness it was supposed to bring, it just really kind of brought frustration and more and more brokenness. And so the text that we have before us this morning from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, in particular, these two prophets and some others begin to imagine, oh, wait, God's not done with us. He's not given up on this renewal of people in the image of God. But here's what he's got to do. And there's two things. The reason I chose Ezekiel 36 is I love this. There are two things God wants to do in the text. The first thing is clean up his image. God says, listen, I'm going to have to make you holy. But it's not for your sake. (laughs) It's for mine, says God. I think this is rooted in the third command in the Ten Commandments. I've said this to you before, but growing up, I thought the third command about not using God's name in vain was largely about cussing. So I met a few Jewish people. I realize there's no Jewish person who stubs their toe and goes, Jehovah, 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 Yahweh, Yahweh. Like, that doesn't happen, right? God's name is sacred in that way. And it's not a good habit to get into. But that third command is not so much about cussing or using God's name as a curse. It is about the fact that you and I bear God's name on us. You've shown up to church today. In a way, you have announced to the world as you drove here, I am a Christian. Whatever, this is a very important thing for 21st century folk. Whatever the world knows about Jesus, they are going to know because of people who bear his name in the world. And so God says to Israel, listen, I really have to work on my reputation. And it's not my fault, it's yours. 
for you have misused my name in the world. And so I'm going to have to make my name holy again, but the only way to do that is make you holy. Then the second thing, but what I really need to do is give you a new heart. Take out, like those tablets, a heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's soft to me and to my purposes. And I need to give you a new spirit, a, a ruach, a breath, that which empowered the life of Adam and Eve to breathe. I need to give you a new breath that will empower you to live this life. And I, I need to give you that new heart and that new spirit. Certainly when we get to the New Testament, Jesus enters in the word made flesh dwelling among us. John says, Jesus is the reflection of this glory. If you want to know what the image, the real restored image of God looks like, you look at Jesus. For we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus offers to his disciples, and this is very important, Jesus offers his disciples not a secret to how to get to Narnia, not secrets for how to get to the next stage of life. But he keeps saying to them, follow me, follow me, follow me. And he offers to them a way of being restored to be who we were created to be and to be empowered by the Spirit. So it is not our work only, but it is the Spirit's work within us, forming us to be what we were created to be. That's why I read John a little bit earlier. John says to Nicodemus, listen, Nick, you want eternal life, you have to be born again. And Nick says, what? I have to go where? That doesn't make sense. And Jesus says, no, you have to be born anew of the Spirit. A whole new life restored to be what you were intended to be. That, that is eternal life, Nicodemus. That is what you were called and created to be. And Paul and the early church then begins to understand, oh, the spirit that has come upon this people called the church at Pentecost now transforms us and makes us new and, and not just individually, but to collectively makes us a people called church that are no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but that love that brings all creation back together is at work within us and we become the reflection of who Christ is in the power of the spirit as this people called church. Now that's really important. <laughs> In fact, central to everything we do. But as I think about that, there's a few things I think every once in a while we get kind of wrong in this. One is, and we see this early on, as the gospel went to Gentiles, Gentiles in the first century really shaped by primarily Greek ways of thinking about their life and the body. Gentiles tended to think of themselves as two things, at least. A body and a soul, kind of squished together. Now, Jewish people tended to think, the way I would say this this way, Jewish people tend to think of themselves as a soul, not having a soul. This is why for Jewish people, the resurrection of the body is so important. And their hopes that what will happen in the eschaton at the end is that this new creation will come and the dead will be raised and our bodies will be redeemed. Greek people, because of this dualism, at times began to think, 
Well, what Jesus meant to do was to tell us how to get our souls out of here. And this led, especially in the letters of 1st, 2nd Corinthians, this led some Christians to say this, listen, I'm in, Paul, and my soul is okay with God. We are at peace, baby. I've been meditating on God. My soul is so good. But then they take their bodies and go do really bad, profane things with them. But they would say, that doesn't matter. My body's going to die. But nobody cares about my body. My soul's okay, right? Now here's what Paul over and over says about that. No, no, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus did not come to tell you how to get out of here. Jesus came so we could be holy in the body. And so Paul's call is constantly, listen, you can't go do bad things with your body because your body too has been redeemed. And I know we think of that as a first century problem, but today in the 21st century, it looks like people who are Sunday Christians and Monday through Saturday pagans. And it is why week after week, no matter what we're dealing with, at some level, we're talking about wholeness, holiness. I used to do this thing when I was in Richardson. For 20 years now, I've said at the end, if you've listened well today, but I used to in Richardson say, by the way, my, you know, my favorite benediction that you know is out of Thessalonians. May the God of peace himself sanctify us through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called us, he is faithful, he will do it. Well, I would say to them, if you listen well today, we may have been talking about money today, but if you listen well, this is really a sermon about holiness because when we are sanctified, when all of us has been taken over by the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then even our money matters to God. And so this has been a sermon about, and then I trained them so well, they would say back to me, sanctification. And I would do that week after week. Now I know that today sounded like relationships, but it was really about, and they would yell back at me, sanctification. It was so awesome. One of the general superintendents, so if you're new to the church in Nazarene, we have six leaders that we call general superintendents. One of them showed up to church one week and preached. And at the end, I got up and said, now, if you listen well today, the general superintendent was talking about X. But when the general superintendent was talking about that, what they were really talking about, and it was awesome, the whole congregation shouted back at me, sanctification! You so want to do that when a general superintendent's there? Because <laughs> for the next five years, I would hear about, people would say, man, I hear you are such a great holiness preacher. And I would say, yeah, I just preach on everything. Um, but this is so important because sanctification takes up our whole life. Then nothing is exempt from the Lordship of Christ in our lives. And so even if the word holiness or sanctification never enters into a sermon, it is likely it's still about holiness or sanctification. Because there is not the separation of our lives. Secondly, I really need you to listen faster. Um, because of this, I think we have had a tendency to make this, sometimes the question is, how do we get to heaven? And I want to say, that's not an unimportant question. But some of you, if, who maybe were raised in, in the church like me, I thought for some reason, when I got on a plane, I was supposed to lean over to the person next to me, and this was my pickup line. 
if this plane goes down, do you know where you would be, right? <laughs> and the reason why I was asking that question was because clearly the most important question is where do you go when you die? And again, that's not an unimportant question, especially today as we have been thinking about the reality of death in so many of our lives right now. The hope that we have that death does not get the last word is so central. But again, the gospel is not centrally focused on the question of getting to heaven when you die. It is a question of discipleship. And by the way, this is not just a Nazarene thing. Before he died, I got a chance to, to get to know Dallas Willard a bit. And Dallas wrote a wonderful book, not a Nazarene, a wonderful book called The Great Omission. In which he was saying about his own tradition, here's the problem. We have thought about faith simply as believing a few things, making sure we get to heaven. And we've missed the whole boat, which is discipleship and following Jesus. I love N.T. Wright, who is not a Nazarene, but N.T. Wright will say, listen, the whole goal of the gospel is what he calls eschatological authenticity. It's about becoming really who we are supposed to be in the eternity today. And every time I read that, I go, that's holiness. They'd be such good Nazarenes. And out of that, then, we have begun to focus also and at times divided concepts like salvation and sanctification too far from each other. In this tradition, sometimes we will use the language of sanctification as a second work of grace, which I agree with. But I agree with that because there's a bunch of works of grace. If some of you read David Busick's book, I know some of you in Sunday school class have been reading Way Truth Life. In Way Truth Life, I think David talks about six different things grace does to us. And I want to say, yes, grace saves and sanctifies and sustains. Like there's so much stuff that grace does for us. But sometimes when we use that language, I think what we've tended to think is we get to live as saved people for a while and then we get to be sanctified. Now I'm on really dangerous ground now, but I'm going to pull up quickly. I used to joke as a kid, the worst part about being Nazarene was you had to remember two dates. The date you were saved and then the date you were sanctified, right? And I want to argue, I understand why that happens. Even in John Wesley's day, Wesley was dealing with people in the Anglican world who thought they were Christian because they were English. They'd been baptized in the Anglican church, but he looked at them and said, there's nothing like vital discipleship and piety going on here. And so he invited them into a second work of grace. But here's the problem. I think when we divide those far apart from each other, we end up with two categories of Christians in this room. Some of you who are saved because you believe certain things, but you haven't given everything to Christ. But then we think about the sanctified life as something either that we do when we get really serious about this. So oftentimes we look at young people and say, you get to be saved now, but later you'll get to be sanctified. Man, Paul says to Timothy, why don't you do that now and become a model for the church? <laughs> so all that to say, there may be many things that grace does to us, but you don't have to wait for it. There's no process. The product of holiness is far more important to the scripture than the process that we go through to get there. And because of that, at least my mother's saying amen. Yes, and because of that then, we have to, in holiness, take off the old life, Paul says, and put on the new life. This is an image from baptism where in the early church, they often baptized gender separately because you took off your clothes on the way in and you got new white clothes on the way out. 
But the reason that Paul says we got to take off the old life in order to put on this new life, I would say oftentimes in our own tradition, we are really good at the taking off part. All the things we have to leave behind in order to be holy, but we haven't always been as good at saying, but now here are the things you have to put on. And so we have taken off a bunch of stuff and become kind of separatistic and legalistic without being filled with the spirit of love for the sake of the world. When you do that, you're no help to anybody. Oh, that's good preaching. I hope I'm here next week because I got six more things to say. <laughs> but, and we've oftentimes so emphasized what in our tradition we've called the crisis of making a decision to finally give oneself fully to Christ that we have ignored the process that that decision now signs us up for. I've never understood this conflict, by the way. And if you don't know this conflict, great, don't lean into it. But I will often say, times say to students, next, next month, Deb and I will celebrate 32 years of marriage. Oh, my word. But you know, on February the 23rd, 1990, we stood in front of a group of friends who brought toasters and blenders at Seattle Aurora Church. And we said, I'm going to take her. And she said, I'm going to take him. And you know, when we walked out of that sanctuary that night, we were so married. Like you couldn't be more married than we were. Can I tell you 32 years later, I'm so much more married. <laughs> I had no idea all the transformation that commitment was getting myself into. And some of you who've been married 50 and 60 years are looking at me saying, Junior, you just wait. <laughs> you think 32 years, wait till you get to 60, you'll be so much more married. You'll walk like, the, no, uh, but... Uh, If you have not given yourself fully to Christ, give yourself fully to Christ. And once you've given yourself fully to Christ, you've been given fully to Christ. But you have signed yourself up for God to mess with you now. And to use the means of grace to constantly transform us. In the Corinthians text, this whole thing really is based on 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, if anybody is in Christ, right there, that's new creation. But in the text we read today, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, listen, in that previous way of being holy, it wasn't that that was bad. The law was not bad. The law had a lot of glory to it. But again, the problem was it, it, it wasn't a sustaining glory. And so Moses was transformed, but then Paul says he did a funny thing. He put a veil over his face because the glory was receding and he didn't want everybody to know about it. But that's not how we live now, Paul says. We have seen the glory of the Father full of grace and truth. And we look at Jesus. And so week after week, we gather together and we come to this place and we view who God is through unveiled faces. And we see Jesus, Paul says, as though looking in a mirror, we see the reflection of Christ. And now we are transformed, Paul says, from glory into glory. And I think we can just keep that going. Into glory, into glory, into glory, into glory. One of my favorite things about being a holiness people is this. We never get to say that's just old Brent. And if you knew Brent's parents and if you knew all Brent's been through, you know why Brent is Brent. Because here's the deal. Brent can be new Brent. 
transformed from glory into glory into glory. And the last thing is this. Sometimes we make the mistake of making holiness only personal. And please hear me, it is deeply personal. You young people, you don't get to have, you don't get to live forever on the faith of your parents. Um, and we older folk, we don't get to live on all the things we've just accomplished in the past. Faith is deeply personal. Holiness is deeply personal. But we have often made the mistake of recognizing that is also deeply corporate. That God is not just forming individuals who are holy. God is forming a people called Israel, a people called the church, who are holy together, who in a world so desperate for the light become a reflection of the love and mercy and grace and holiness of God. And so here's the thing. We never get to say that's just old college church. And if you knew everything college church has been through, if you knew the knucklehead they have as a pastor, you'd know why college church is the way they are. We don't get to say that because old college church gets to move from glory to glory to glory to be constantly renewed, sanctified, made holy college church. Thanks be to God. So brothers and sisters, a new creation people are a holy people. We're called to be holy as God is holy, which is understood as Christ-likeness. And becoming holy is not just an act of our will. Oh, God won't do it without our involvement. But it's not just an act of our will. Holiness or the sanctification of all of life entails lifelong submission to the will of God, participation with the work of the Spirit through various means of grace that day by day and moment by moment transform us from one degree of glory to another. Thanks be to God. He does not leave us in our bondage and slavery, but he sets us free to be what we were created to be from the very beginning, reflections of the character and love of God. God, help us today. Oh. I pray for some who are here today for whom all of this just sounds new and strange, but enticing and inviting. Some who are here, maybe even online today, maybe listening to this podcast months from now, who sense a tug within them, calling them to what you have created them to be. I pray, God, in this moment, in this room, wherever they find themselves today, that they would respond to that tug and invite you to be Lord of their life, pardoning from sin, filling with your spirit, transforming their lives to be what you have created them to be. I pray that for us as a church. Make us your people together, called, formed, empowered to be what you want your people to be, lights, a reflection of your love in the world. Have mercy on us when we get stuck taking stuff off and forget to put stuff on. Have mercy on us when we 
hold back parts of our life from you. Keep calling us, keep transforming us, keep renewing us, we pray. For to be a new creation people is to be a holy people. So make us your holy people, we pray. For we pray this in the one who is the reflection of your holiness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's affirm this together.
reasons um, Deb and I have made it 32 years, she's been incredibly patient with me. As I've learned to live into the promise that we made to each other. How much more is God patient with us? I got, we got to go, but one day it struck me when I was reading in Acts, the arguments that Paul and Peter had with each other. And I know this will sound strange, but one day I read it and thought, these were supposed to be sanctified people having conflicts with each other and having to apologize to each other and having to learn from each other. You know, and then it dawned on me, the reason they apologized to each other and the reason they learned to grow from each other is not because they weren't sanctified people, but because they are sanctified people. Responding to the voice of the Spirit in them, leading them to be all that they were created to be. And so if you've listened well this morning, the call to be a new creation people is to be a holiness people. That's why this benediction is for us. May the God of peace himself, may he not just sanctify you, but may he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies, may they be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful and patient and loving and good and merciful, and he will finish his work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.